we start this uh, new series on uh, to the cross and back, what we're going to be talking about is, well, today what we're talking about is Jesus is our Lord and our Passover lamb. Uh, that comes, the, the idea here, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is our Passover lamb. This is our theology today. I'm, I don't know. I'm excited about this one. I, I, I promise you today I'm going to leave a lot on the table. There's going to be a lot that I want to say that we're just not going to have time for. Uh, I know. Yeah. So you have to come hang out with us on Wednesdays. That's right. So our theology today is this. Jesus is the Lord, our Passover lamb. Our application today is this. Our faith in Christ must move from earthly to heavenly. And our prayer today is, God, we thank you for your gracious provision through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Open, if you would, this morning, please, to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And we'll see here, recorded for us, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record uh, the Lord's Supper. And Jesus, on the last night of his life, is celebrating Passover with his disciples. He is celebrating Passover. Passover we'll get into in just a second, but I'm going to read here in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, uh, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve, and as they were reclining, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, began to say to him, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? And he said, The one who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, who would later betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. Last night of the life of Christ, right? He's going to be arrested uh, in a few hours from this point forward. He'll be crucified by 9 in the morning. He'll be on the cross by 9 in the morning. He'll be dead by 3 the next day. And by sunset, before 6 the next day, he'll be buried in a borrowed tomb. He's less than 24 hours away from being buried. It's almost all done. And here Jesus is. He said to his disciples, he said, look, go find us a place that we can do the Passover. They said, where, we, where do you want us to find a place? He said, as you're going into town, you're going you're gonna to find a man. When you see that man, ask him, just tell him, hey, look, we're going to meet at your house today. We're having Passover at your house. And so the guy lets them do that. And they, the disciples go and they get Passover dinner ready. Now, Passover, if you're not familiar with it, it comes from Exodus 12. Passover comes from Exodus 12. Now, Moses, back in Exodus, Moses, Charlton Heston, remember the Ten Commandments? Uh, I'm dating myself, but like, um, I mean, that was even earlier than me. But, I, but it's one of those things that like, uh, that we, we were allowed to watch one hour of television a week growing up. I always picked MacGyver. Um, that was the right choice. I just want you to know that. Uh, any other choice would have been wrong. 
And, uh, but one, one week a year, every year, the Ten Commandments would air. And th- those two nights in a row, because it, you know, it was like a four-hour movie, those two nights in a row, my parents would let us stay up and watch extra TV that week. So I grew up, like, for me, it wasn't so much about enjoying the Ten Commandments as it was, like, extra television and getting to stay up late, you know? But, like, that's, like, seared into my mind, Charlton Heston. So if, if, you're, if that's who you think of when you think of Moses, I wonder how many Christians picture Charlton Heston when they picture Moses. Anyway... Uh, so, so Moses is leading the people. He's getting ready to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. They've been in Egypt for 430 years. And Moses has been telling Pharaoh, let my people go. Long story short, there have been nine plagues that God has brought on the Egyptian people to, to kind of bring them to this place where he's like, okay, you guys can get out of here. But Pharaoh's still a little bit resistant. He doesn't want the Israelites to leave. And so God goes, I'm going to bring one more plague on the people. And he tells Moses, here's what I want you to do. This is the first day of the first month of your year from now on. Like we're starting a new calendar for you. On the 10th day of this month, I want you to take a lamb without blemish, a male lamb without blemish, and bring it into your house and care for it for a period of four days. And on the 14th day, I want you to take that lamb and I want you to kill it. And I want you to take its blood and I want you to paint the door frames of your house with it. And I want you to eat this lamb roasted over the fire with your cloak tucked into your belt, with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, because it's going to be time to go. And so the Bible tells us that uh, the Israelites are doing this, right? They're sitting there. And I want you to imagine this, like God has said that I'm coming uh, a lot of places will say the death angel, but God himself says, I will come in about midnight. I think we just don't want it to be like God that did it. But like, anyway, God says, I'll be coming through about midnight. And he says, and what I'll do is every house that doesn't have the blood on the door, I'll strike down the firstborn in that household. And so the Israelites, it's the first day of the month. On the 10th day of the month, they bring a lamb into their house. You know, they kill it. On this 14th day of the month, they paint the doorframe of their house. They roast it with fire, and they're sitting there in their house. And I just I try to imagine what this must be like as you're sitting there in your house, looking at your family. You're, eye, you're eyeballing the firstborn, probably. Uh, I'm the firstborn. And so, like, I can imagine, like, everybody kind of going, all right, is he going to die? Like, what's happening? We don't know. Did we do it right? You know, <laughs> is there enough blood on the door? Like, if I'm the firstborn, I'm out there making sure dad did it. You know, put, <laughs> you missed a spot. I'm the one that's at risk here, like, right? And so they've been in slavery for 430 years, and we're sitting there, and the mood must be solemn. Like, must be solemn. I, I kind of, there's a couple of pictures that I get in my head, but one of the pictures, I was a swimmer in high school, and, and one, of the, one of the most stressful moments as a swimmer, and maybe if you're a track person, this was stressful for you too, but they'd say, swimmers, take your mark, and you'd You'd, you'd bend down and you'd grab the block and they'd say, get set. And you'd kind of tense up and then you go, they, they'd go, man, there'd be this like loud thing, right? And you just like, like your heart's just racing and you jump. And, but what was funny is there was always somebody who fell in on swimmer, take your mark. <laughs> like, because like you're tensed up, you know what I mean? So here you are, you're tensed up, you're eating your lamb. You've got your cloak in your belt. You've got your shoes on your feet. You got your staff in your hand, I, I guess in your left hand, cause you're probably eating with your right. And so like, you're like ready to go. And I want you to picture this. About midnight, God comes through and he starts to strike down the firstborn in every household that doesn't have blood on the door. The Bible says that like there was a cry heard in Egypt that had never been heard before since. And so I want you to think about this for just a minute. That in this, in Egypt, the nation, a nation of people, in every household, someone's dying. In every household where there's not blood on the door, someone is dying. And I want you to imagine 
finding your firstborn dead and the cries that begin. And here you are, you're an Israelite and you're in your house and you're eating the lamb and your cloak's tucked into your belt and you got your staff in your hand and your sandals on your feet and the moms and the dads begin to weep in a nation, a nation, right? Can you imagine? And here you are, the firelight flickering and your heart's racing. And then the Bible says the Egyptians begin to go to the Israelites and say, get out, leave. So I want you to imagine that moment when there's that first knock on the door and you gotta just jump. And the Egyptians are there and they're like, go, leave. And you flee out of the house and you're running out of the house and you're grabbing up all your belongings and you're going as fast as you can to get away and you're leaving Egypt now finally free. And you don't even have time to really kind of process it in this moment. And this now is Passover because God has passed over you, right? Because of the blood of the lamb on the door. The judgment didn't touch you. And this whole thing is, is tr- like just uh, kind of mind-blowing. It's, there, there's probably a reason that, that God said, now I want you to celebrate this for the next seven days. It probably took them that long to just kind of like unwind a little bit. Like, you know, like you kind of get, oh man, you got tension in your neck. You're like, oh my goodness, that was just a lot, you know? And so Passover now, Passover supper is what they would do every year to commemorate that moment, to commemorate and remember the moment that God had set them free from slavery, right? So here Jesus is on the last night of his life, and it's Passover. Why is it that Jesus' death coincides with Passover? Why? Well, he, he tells us right here. Look at this. Pick up with me again here in verse 26. Now, as they were eating, so they've finished supper. Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks for it, he said, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. See, the the Passover tradition, okay? Now, We can talk about this later. I would love to visit with you about this. But what the Bible says about Passover is very different than what, like, modern Jews say about Passover. Okay? And so it's just, they're very different traditions. In the Bible, okay, in the Bible what they would do is they would have bread and they would have wine. And the bread symbolized the lamb and the wine symbolized the blood of the lamb. And so they've had their Passover celebration. And then Jesus takes some bread and holds it up and he says, now this is my body broken for you. And then he takes the wine and he holds it up and he says, now this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus has just done in this solemn moment, this solemn fellowship that the Jews are having, that his disciples are having with him, what he's just done is he said, you, you know the tradition of Passover. You know how God rescued our people from slavery. You know how God showed himself in power and how through the blood of the, of the unbroken, spotless lamb that our people were saved. And then Jesus says, now I'm that. Now I'm the lamb. Now my blood is shed. And he takes Passover, and what it had been for was being rescued from Egypt. And now he says, no, no, no. Now this is about me rescuing you from death, from sin, from slavery to sin. And now what he has here is he's taking the Passover lamb and the people being rescued from physical slavery in Egypt. And he's saying, now I am this sacrifice, and now my blood is shed. But for what? Not for freedom from an oppressor like Rome. Right? 
right now in this time when Jesus is doing the, the Lord's Supper with the disciples, they're oppressed by Rome. They're under Roman control, under Roman authority. And in fact, people kept expecting that Jesus would be this earthly king who would kick out Rome. And yet Jesus says, my body and my blood shed, not so that you can be set free from some tyrannical ruler, my body and my blood shed so that you could be set free from sin. Bigger. Better to be set free from sin than to be set free from Rome. Okay? Better to be set free from sin than to be set free from Egypt. Being set free from Egypt, big deal. Being set free from sin, bigger deal. Okay? And so Jesus takes this Passover and he says, look, I'm, I'm the Passover lamb. I am the, the spotless lamb. I am the one who, whose blood was shed so that you could be rescued. And so now Jesus is taking this ownership. In fact, Paul calls Christ our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. And he, he says that Christ is our, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. I don't know if the disciples, I mean, traditions are kind of hard it's difficult to keep the weight of tradition, I think. Like sometimes we just do tradition because we just do it, you know? And, but this Passover celebration of the Jews, it was, it was a thing that they did faithfully. And Jesus is giving it new meaning and new life. Now I want to show you something here, okay? This is at the end of Jesus' public ministry, which has been somewhere between two and three years in time, two and three years long. In this amount of time, if you're one of his disciples, not just the 12, but one of the women who's been following him the whole time, there's a group of people who have been with him the whole time. Um, we, we know that shortly after this, in the upper room, there are 120. So there's at least a, a, a sizable group of people who have kind of been going with Jesus, not like thousands and thousands who have stuck with him the whole time, but a lot. If you're one of his disciples, you've seen him raise the dead. You've seen him walk on water. You've seen him feed the multitudes. You've seen him do these things. If you're one of the 12, like if you're Peter, James, and John, you were on him, uh, with him on the Mount of Transfiguration when he met with Elijah and Moses and his clothes were wider than anything, wider than light, right? Like you, you've seen this amazing stuff. You've seen Jesus cast out demons. You've seen uh, a man who was possessed by 2,000 demons, uh, ripped chains and running naked through the, uh, through the, through the cemeteries and, and Christ spoke to him and the demons came out and now he was right in his own right mind and you've seen the tomb rolled away or the stone rolled away and God called Lazarus or Jesus called Lazarus from the tomb, a little 12-year-old girl who had died, a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, Jesus doing these amazing things like you have, you, man, like wow, right? Like you're just, <laughs> and you get to this moment and you're like, this is good. This has been good. You know, I like this. And Jesus is like, okay, it's time for me to die. And Peter's like, no, 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 you're not going to die. It's not going to happen. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. But look at this. Let me show you something. something I got sidetracked. I'm sorry. Look at this here. Verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him, one after the other, is it I, Lord? He answered, the one who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. I've got to think that that statement probably shook somebody because I'm imagining everybody's sharing the same dish. 
it's like chips and salsa kind of thing, although a little more holy, right? You know, and so like <laughs> they're all like dipping out of the same dish and everybody's going, well, crud, <laughs> you know? I didn't narrow it down at all, you know? Like one of you will betray me. Which one? The one who's eating the chips and salsa. It's like, ah, oh, it's all of us, you know? <laughs> the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man, or by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man had not been born. Judas, the one who would betray him, said, is it me, rabbi? Some of your translations will say, and probably better say, is it me, teacher? So rabbi means teacher. He said to him, you've said so. So I want, I, want to, I want to put something in your head here. Now, the disciples at this point, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Jesus hasn't died yet. He hasn't been raised from the dead yet. There's a, still a big gap in their understanding of who he is. But what I want you to catch is that at least 11 of the people, we don't know how many people for sure are in the room with them, but at least 11 of the people go, is it me, Lord, and call Jesus Lord? And Judas, the one who's going to betray him, says, is it me, teacher? Two years hanging out with Jesus, two years watching him raise the dead, two years watching him feed the multitudes, two years of seeing him do these miracles, and the best he can muster for Jesus is, you're a teacher. And the other guys are like, is it me, Lord? They're grief-stricken. Judas is like, hey, teacher, is it me? He's like, yep. You know? They don't quite get it. The Bible will tell us in the book of John that they still don't completely get it because after this, although Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record this part for us, John does. And after this, Jesus turns to Judas and says, what you need to do, go and do quickly. And so Judas leaves to go betray Christ. And the Bible says that the rest of the disciples thought he had to go buy something for the Passover because Judas carried the money. And they're, st they're still going, I don't know. <laughs> Even though Jesus has just said, you're the one who's going to betray me. They're like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I bet he's going to go buy some more bread. You know, like Judas is like, I'm out, time to betray. Like, but here's what I need you to catch. And this brings us to our application. Our faith in Christ must move from earthly to heavenly. Now, this point, and I would love to talk to you and visit with you more about this. The other 11 are still not completely convinced that Jesus is God. They're not quite there yet. But they're, they're at least at the place where they're like, you're our Lord. We don't know what it's going to look like yet. We don't know what that means yet, but you're our Lord. Judas never quite gets there, but listen to this. Let me show you something. Well, time's sake, okay? In John 6, all right, John 6, one of my favorite texts, I end up, I feel like everything returns to John 6. Probably not. It's probably just me. Uh, in John 6, verse 2, the Bible says that this crowd of people is following Jesus because of the miracles he had done. So I want you to get this for a minute. They're following Jesus because he does all these miracles. He's powerful, right? He's raising the dead. He's healing their loved ones. Like they're sick. Like he's taking care of them. And so they're following him in part to see what he's going to do next. And in part, because maybe I've got a sick loved one at home, right? They come and they gather around Jesus. He talks to them for a little bit. And then he says, let's feed them. And this is where he feeds the 5,000. And now the 5,000 there is just men, not counting the women and children who are gathered there. It's a big group of people. And Jesus multiplies a kid's lunch, five loaves of bread and two fish, and feeds this entire multitude. And the Bible tells us in John 6.15, it's a verse that I think doesn't get enough looking at. The Bible tells us in John 6.15 that they sought to make him king by force. They're so impressed by his miracles, and then he just fed them. They're like, this guy needs to be our king, and they seek to make him king by force. Here's what I need you to catch. 
They are looking for a king to sit on a physical throne to deal with a physical enemy, Rome, and to bring physical blessing to a physical country. That's what they're looking for, right? They're thinking this guy would be a great king. He can heal people. He can raise the dead, and he can feed us when we don't have food. And all of that for them doesn't make them go, wow, this guy's God. All of that for them makes them go, this guy would make a great king. Think of what the economy could do. Like, really, okay? He, he disappears from their midst. He goes and he prays. He, this is where he walks on water. The disciples see him. They think it's a ghost. Cool story, funny story. Peter, huh, in the middle of the mess again. Anyway, they get to the other side of the sea. The people wake up the next morning. They're like, where is he? He didn't take the boat with his disciples. They run around the sea, get to the other side. And the Bible tells us it's like verse 26 or something like that, that now they're following him for free food. Check this out. Yesterday, yesterday they were following him. Why? Because he could do cool miracles. Today they're following him because free food. They want to make him king. Now, the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 7, and I think I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes. No, I'm not, because I don't have Daniel 7 written in my notes. So that's okay. Oh, I do. It's down here. I am ahead of myself. In Daniel 7, okay, a prophecy of the last days says that the ancient of days, that's God, was seated on his throne, and one like a son of man, that's Jesus, came and stood before him. And the ancient of days, God, gave to the son of man, Jesus, a kingdom which would never have an end, and that Christ would be king over all nations and all peoples forever. We see that in Revelation 19 and 20, that when Christ returns, he is given a kingdom which will never have an end over which he will rule forever. We see that in the prophet uh, of Ezekiel where it says that there will be one like David, but it's not David, it's Jesus, who will come and set up his kingdom on earth and reign over every kingdom for all time. So is Jesus a king? Absolutely. Will he be given the kingdoms of all the earth? Yes, but is that a physical thing or a spiritual thing? Well, it's kind of both, but more spiritual than physical. It's, it's not just, like, what I need us to understand is that, like, he, he's not going to be, like, the next president of the United States, right? It's not going to be that. It's not going to be like, man, if only Putin were out and then Jesus were in, like, that would fix it. That's earthly. It's heavenly. He is the king over all kings. He is the Lord over all lords, right? He, all kings and all lords and all rulers get their authority from him and through him, and all will bow down before him. But that's not what the Jews were looking for. They're going, man, this guy can heal our sick, and this guy can feed our hungry. Let's make him a king. This guy must have enough power to get rid of Rome. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for another Passover lamb. They're looking for a Passover lamb that will rescue them from oppression. They are not looking for a Passover lamb that will save them from their sins. Which is why Judas is like, man, you're a good teacher. <laughs> you're just not Lord. Listen to this. There is a gap there is a gap between earthly wisdom and spiritual wisdom. There's a big gap. And a lot of people have this mindset that if we could just get smart enough, if we could just educate people enough, they would believe in Jesus. 
it, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Like, I mean, come on, guys. There were four squads of soldiers that were guarding the tomb of Jesus on the day. Of, spoilers, this is five weeks from now. But uh, Jesus comes back to life. I know. We're not even to the part yet where he dies. You're like, hold on a second. Comes back to life. Like, we're going to kill him off in, in three weeks, bring him back to life in four. Okay? Now you know the whole story. I'm sorry to ruin it for you. But four squads of soldiers guarding the tomb of Jesus. The angel comes. The earthquake happens. The stone is rolled away. Jesus walks out. And these soldiers say, no, no, no. If you pay us enough money, we'll deny that he was raised from the dead. I just need you to know this. People say, oh, man, if they would just see Jesus, if Jesus would just show up, people go, then they would believe. I need you to catch this. Sixteen soldiers saw Jesus walk out of a tomb and chose not to believe it. I need you to catch this. Judas walked with Jesus for at least two years and didn't believe it. I need you to get that seeing another miracle, having another provision, people are like, man, if God would just heal all these people that I know of their cancer and all these people of their sickness, then people would get saved. I need you to know that God was raising the dead and people didn't believe it. That he was feeding the multitudes and people didn't believe it. I need us to understand that there's a difference between an earthly understanding of the situation and a spiritual understanding of the situation. I need us to know that, that what we are trying to learn here is the spiritual truth and not the earthly truth because the earthly truth is temporary. This building, temporary. This body, temporary. This life and this world and this this war and the next war and the one after that and the famine and the plague and the baby dying in the hospital, temporary. And while we can pray and intercede, I need us to be the people who aren't just looking for a fix to the temporary. But we're looking to the eternal to God who sits in heaven and Christ who sits at his right hand, to the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet and the day the skies are peeled back and Christ returns and his kingdom is established forever and we are made new. We can't understand these things because we're good at math. You, you can't educate yourself into faith. 1 Corinthians says this, Beginning in verse 20, where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, think miracles. Greeks seek wisdom, seek more learning. But, to, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called to salvation from the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest of men, and the weakness of God is stronger than the strongest of men. Check this out. We cannot comprehend God through the scientific method. You can't. You can't observe him enough through the five senses to go, I believe. Judas sat next to him, stood next to him when Lazarus came out of the tomb and was still able to betray him. I, like, 
This, this is not something that we strong arm people into that we just say, look, if they'll just read another book, if I can just get them to a, this is faith. This is God working in us. This is the spiritual truth of God, which is higher than the earthly truth of the world. Like, like earthly wisdom does not bring us to salvation. It just doesn't. And did you catch what it said here? It said the Jews were seeking signs. What do the Jews want? Give us another miracle. Why were they following him in John 6? Right? Because he did miracles. Why were they following him the next day, later in John 6? Because he could feed them. Give us another sign. And what did they say to him? I, I use this text a lot, so you might know it by now. But in John 6, when they caught up to him the next day, they say, do a sign so that we can believe you're the Lord. Why were they following him the day before? Because of the signs he did. Why are they following him today? Because of the sign he did yesterday. But do you catch it? Do another one, or I don't believe. Do another one, or I won't believe. Do another one, or I won't believe. Meanwhile, what are the Greeks concerned with? I need more learning. I need more education. I need more knowledge. Give me more knowledge. Give me. And here's what Paul says. He says, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. Catch this, please. Especially if you're... Uh, trying to share Christ with somebody else, and you're thinking like, I keep telling them about Jesus, but I can't seem to get it to click in their mind. What else can I do for them? Catch this. Paul says that the Jews who are seeking signs, he says Jesus is that sign. Paul says the Greeks are seeking wisdom, and Jesus is that wisdom. In other words, in other words, the best thing that we can ever give anyone is the truth about who Christ is. Pray, like my sister, who's 44, just had baby number six uh, yesterday. Their oldest is almost 20. Their youngest is a day old. And, uh, and they're in NICU right now, and they can't see the baby. Uh, she's not breathing on her own yet, and so they've got her in NICU right now. So she sent out a text to us yesterday and said, be praying for our baby. Her name's Holland, H-O-L-L-Y-N, so be praying for baby Holland. And so, like, pray. We pray. Right? We have loved ones who are sick, and what do we do? We pray. We pray for the church, for the saints in Ukraine who are representing Christ in the middle of all this turmoil, right? We pray. Right? And we think, we think if the baby gets off the oxygen, if my friend gets cured of cancer, if the war comes to an end, people will believe in Jesus. Pray for all those things to be done, but not so that the world will be, be, believe in Jesus. Because if they're just following him because of the signs, what will they demand tomorrow? Another sign. The best thing we can give somebody, somebody says, give me a sign so that I can believe. We say Jesus was raised from the dead. People go, give me more wisdom so that I can believe Jesus is God. There's your wisdom. And in him is life. People go, that's not enough. And I am telling you, it is everything. It's everything. What else do we have to offer them? Everything else is temporary. A healing of the body is temporary. The body still dies. It's, Jesus is eternal, right? See, the problem with, with Judas, the problem with the people in John 6, is they were looking for earthly fixes, and earthly blessings. We are not here for the earthly blessings. We believe, we believe here, 
Don't hold me to this. It's Psalm 84, but maybe it's Psalm 86, but it could be Psalm 87. It's definitely a psalm, and it's definitely in the 80s, and I'm pretty sure it's one of those three, and maybe Psalm 84, but I'm not positive because it's not in my notes. This one, yes, I am. (laughs) I love you guys. Thank you. The psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, right? Better is one day in your courts. That's spiritual. That's spiritual truth. Better is one day in the presence of God, in the glory of eternity. Better is one day there than a thousand here. And yet, what do we tend to, how do we tend to appeal to people to come to Christ? Come to Christ for here, for the next thousand days, so that they can be better, so that your life here can be better. Listen. This is not an earthly argument. This is a heavenly argument. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 8? Thank you for asking. Romans 8, we just went through this a few weeks ago. Romans 8, 16, 17, and 18. The Spirit of God testifies to my spirit that I am a child of God. And if I am a child of God, I am an heir of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided that I also suffer with him, that I might be glorified together with him. Verse 18. And I consider that the sufferings of this present age are nothing compared to the glory that will be brought to me on the day Christ Jesus is revealed. How is it that Paul was able to face the sufferings of this present age? Because his eyes weren't on the present age. His eyes were on the glory that will be brought to him the day Christ shows up. Listen to what Paul says about being a preacher and being persecuted in the first century for Christ. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says uh, of carrying the gospel and being persecuted and being beaten and being thrown in jail and being shipwrecked. He said this, so we do not lose heart, though our outward body is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this is a light and momentary affliction, and it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As We look not to the things which are seen, but to the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the unseen things are eternal. And Jesus is our Lord and our Passover lamb. Not our Lord who will save us from an oppressive regime. Not our Passover lamb who rescues us from earthly slavery and trials but our Lord who rescues us and delivers us from sin and death and ushers us into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God by his own body broken for us and his own blood shed for us. What we are offering people here at this church and by people of faith is not that the world out there will be better, but that there is a better world being brought to us through our King who will make all things new. We look not to the things which are seen, for the things which are seen are very temporary, even if they persist for another 5,000 years. Temporary. I want to ask you this question today. Your relationship with Christ... Because don't think, don't think for a moment that there aren't still people today following Jesus so they can see another trick, so they can get another meal. 
your relationship with Christ? Is it about the temporary or about the eternal? Are you looking to him to rescue from a temporary oppression or an eternal damnation? Are you looking to him to heal you from uh, a temporary slavery or to Romans 6, 15 through 18 to set you free from slavery to sin? Are you looking at him so that life here can be a little bit better? Or are you looking to him for eternal life, which trumps everything? Those of you who aren't like, I'll just, I'll say it this way. Those of you who have been in church for a long time, you've been around church long enough to watch people worship God and then get to a point where they go, you know, I'm done with this and walk away. You've seen it. You know what happened to everybody at the end of John 6? Everybody at the end of John 6 walks away except for the twelve. Jesus says, are you going to leave me also? Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Jesus goes, I chose all of you, but one of you is an enemy. One of you is a devil. One of you is an adversary. And John, or sorry, not John. Yeah, John, John 6. John says he was saying this about Judas who would later betray him. The 12 stay behind. One of those guys is staying behind because he's going to betray him. Everybody else left when they didn't get what they wanted. This... Christianity, life, this world, it is not on a trajectory of getting easier. It will get harder. It will be more difficult to be a Christian in 10 years than it is now. Not because Jesus is any different, but because our world tolerates us less. If your kids aren't going to be persecuted for the cause of Christ, it, may, it might be your grandkids or your great-grandkids, but it is coming. There is coming a point in our history where every place, there, there won't be a refuge for the believer. It just won't. The Bible says we'll be persecuted and put to death in all nations because of Christ. That we'll be hated by all men because of, we're following Jesus. Like it's, That's coming. If we're in this for the temporary, we bail out at that point. Jesus is our Lord and our Passover lamb. But not so that Dove Creek or San Angelo or Tom Green County or Erion County or what, not so that things can be better now in this temporary life, but so that all things can be whole and full of glory in eternity. So here we are. And I want to, if, if, if we could, for just a moment, if you would just close your eyes as we enter, prepare to enter this time of prayer. I want you to think on something right before we pray. I just want you to think on this for a minute. Exodus 12, God warns the people and says, I'm bringing a judgment. And everyone who has the blood of the lamb covering their doorpost, who consumes the lamb, will be saved from that judgment. If you could, for just a moment, try to put yourself in that frame of mind, this solemn moment, this solemn time. And God has warned us that there is a judgment coming. At the end of the age, when all the dead will be raised to stand before God, according to Revelation 20, there's a judgment coming. 
And those of us who have come under the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb, our Lord and our King, have no fear for it. None. None. Because his blood has rescued us. Because the body of our God and King nailed to the cross, the blood spilled for us, and our faith in him has rescued us from sin. Has ransomed us from death. And not just a nation, but an entire world will wail with the loss and with the judgment. And you and I will be rescued because we didn't seek an earthly king. We didn't seek freedom from earthly oppression. We sought the king of all kings, eternally existing, seated on the throne. And we sought ransom from sin and death. Would you take just a moment right where you are to thank God for the gracious provision he's given us through Jesus Christ our Lord? we come before you today. We praise your name and we thank you for Jesus, our Lord. More, more than just an earthly king, more than just someone who would rescue us from an unjust regime, more than someone who would just make these temporary circumstances better, more than someone who would just raise the dead, more than someone who would just feed the 5,000. You are our Lord and King. You have rescued us and delivered us from sin. And all who have named the name Jesus and all who have called upon your name have been forgiven. All of us who have put our faith in you have been washed clean of our sin. All of us who have put our faith in you have been called your children. All of us who have put our faith in you have been rescued from judgment and fear and condemnation. And I ask God that today you would set our minds not on the temporary. Oh God, give us hearts to pray for the temporary, to pray for the sick, to pray for the dying, to pray for the oppressed, to pray for those who are being treated unjustly, to pray, to pray, to pray and to serve. But God, in all things, set our mind on your kingdom. On the day that we will hear the shout of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet, and that we will behold our gracious king face to face. 